Here's today's reminder. If your church is going to grow, you have to equip your leaders. But how do you do this? How do you empower the leaders at your church to lead well? Join us at equiplab.com backslash church leaders. We're here to equip your ministry team to thrive. Just go to equiplab.com backslash church leaders and join us today. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Jason Day. And in this series, we are exploring the church's stance on LGBTQ issues. This has been a pressing conversation for some time, and we believe it is only growing more important that believers and church leaders engage in this conversation with both love and wisdom. There are many questions that Christians are wrestling with, including what does it mean to love someone in the LGBTQ community while not compromising what the Bible says? Can someone be both gay and Christian? Should we use someone's preferred pronouns? And how can pastors best address these topics with care from the pulpit? We'll explore questions like these from multiple angles, theological, academic, cultural, and social. We'll also hear from the local pastor's perspective. Our guests are more than experts. For some of them, this conversation is extremely personal. We hope that this series will be informative and will help you navigate this challenging area of life and ministry with wisdom, with grace, and with love. And now, let me introduce you to this week's guest. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. I'm so pleased to introduce you to Ed Shaw, who joins me this week from the UK. Ed is a church planter and pastor of Emmanuel City Center in Bristol, England, and director of Living Out a ministry organization that seeks to encourage Christians, equip churches, and engage the world with God's plan for sexuality and identity. Ed is also an accomplished writer, and his latest book is entitled Purposeful Sexuality. In this episode, Ed shares from his experience as a pastor with same-sex attraction and the good that God has brought into his life and friendships because of his openness about his sexuality. We discuss some of the fears ministry leaders have related to the LGBTQ community and how a better understanding about biblical sexuality helps clarify so many of the questions that are being asked today. Ed has such a heart for the gospel and introducing people from all walks of life to Jesus. It's such an encouraging conversation. So please, won't you now join me in my conversation with Ed Shaw. Ed, welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. So good to have you joining us today. It's great to be with you. Excellent. Now, Ed, could you talk a little bit about your background? For those who may not know you, um, in particular, uh, could you could you tell us a bit about your life as a pastor and also about uh, the ministry that you're doing at Living Out? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I do two things at the moment, which if you'd asked me 10 years ago whether I'd ever do, I'd have said no. So 10 years ago, I was working for a church um, as a sort of tra- uh, as a pastor sort of responsible for training across the church family and said I'd never pastor the, a church by myself and never get involved in a church plant. Um, and I now lead a seven-year-old church plant in the city centre of Bristol um, and um, have loved doing that, despite my protestations 10 years ago that I'd never do it. <laughs> I've loved planting a church in the city centre of Bristol, which Bristol's a sort of a large English city, and our congregation is made up of mainly people in their sort of 20s and 30s. We started with a lot of single people. Inevitably, a lot of those single people have got married, uh, but we've got students, singles, married couples in their 30s, and uh, very few people over the age of 40. So I'm 43, and I'm one of the very few people in that age bracket. We're the sort of we're the reverse of loads of churches in the UK, which you know have got loads of people 50 plus and no young people. We're the other way around. And often we think we need to do the trade with another church so that we can balance ourselves out a little bit more. So that's yeah. what I do as a pastor. Um, and then, yeah, 10 years ago, if you told me that I would be involved in what has become Living Out, I would have again said, no way, because what's that What's that involved me doing? Well, that's involved me being open and honest about my sexuality and the fact that I'm so sex attracted or is the world would label it gay? 
And Living Out um, is a website that three pastors set up in, I think, 2013, basically to tell the story of what it is to be a Christian who's same-sex attracted and yet believes that the Bible says that sex is just for the marriage of a man and woman and that same-sex marriage is not an option for somebody who's seeking to live their life in submission uh, to Jesus Christ. And the website tells our stories, but also now tells the stories of a whole host of other people and it's meant to be an online resource to help anybody or any church or any organisation really think through uh, what it means uh, to believe in Christ, follow Christ, seek to obey Christ and do that while also enjoying the good gift of a sexuality uh, that he's given us. Yeah, that, that that's excellent. And Ed, I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about living out. On the website, uh, it says that one of, one of its purposes is encouraging evangelical congregations to welcome and accept same-sex attracted individuals and provide them with pastoral support. And uh, that that's a, a an amazing purpose, right? Um, maybe oftentimes a challenging purpose, but could you talk about what it looks like to actually do this well uh, in, in a church setting as pastors, as ministers? What does it look like to do this well? And then also maybe touch on what it looks like to do this poorly. Yeah, thank you. What does it look like to do this well? Well, I mean, in some ways it's, it's worth thinking about the perspectives of two different groups. One would be uh, the people who are already in your church family who experience same-sex attraction, who, who, ex- who are sort of questioning what their sexuality is, people in your youth group or, or people in, in their 20s and 30s, people who are single, but perhaps also people who are married to somebody of the opposite sex and never being open honest by the fact that same-sex attraction is part of their story. So for a pastor and for a leadership team of the church, thinking through these issues, one of the first things they need to think for is we will probably already have people in our midst for whom same-sex attraction, questions around sexuality and uh, gender identity are big things that they've perhaps never felt able to talk about in the context of an evangelical church. So how can you, as it were, help those already in your midst uh, talk about their experiences and feel that your church family would be the sort of place where you can openly and honestly say, this is a struggle for me. And I think one of the best things that church uh, leaders can do, preachers can do, pastors can do, is just acknowledge the existence of people like that. So in preaching around sex and relationships and marriage and singleness, acknowledge that there will be some people in your church family for whom same-sex attraction or questions around sexuality or uncertainty around gender are lived realities. And just sort of acknowledge their presence. And if you acknowledge their presence, I think you'll find that they then think, oh, they know that I exist. They're wanting to talk to me, therefore I'm going to talk to them. I can think of an experience in my Christian life when just being at a big Christian conference where somebody acknowledged my presence, somebody said there'll be some people here for whom same-sex attraction is a personal and a painful issue. If that's you, I just want to. And just just that acknowledgement of my existence made me think, oh, I could talk about that here. So that would be the first thing for sort of church leaders, recognise that there'll be people already in your church building, part of your church family for these issues. When it comes to the wider community, and in particular LGBT communities outside your church family, um, I think just the big thing to, to realise, if you don't realise it already, is, is just they will be thinking, you are evangelical Christians, therefore you hate us. Just recognise that that is that is the narrative that they have heard from society at large. And often, let's be honest, they've heard in the way that we've behaved or the way that we've badly communicated biblical sexual ethics. So I think one of the things that we need to be doing when we seek to reach out to LGBT communities in our cities and communities is just recognise that they have a posture of fear towards us, as well as us perhaps having a posture of fear towards them. And we need to bridge a gap. And one of the best ways of bridging the gap would be just building friendships and often saying sorry for the missteps we've made in the past. One of the biggest missteps I think that we need to recognise is there is how when the AIDS epidemic was at its height, evangelical Christians were perceived to and actually did basically just say, this is God's judgment, you get what you deserve. And we were, in effect, the priest and the Levites in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We walked by on the other side of the road. And often I found that certainly with 
gay men and women in an older generation who saw that and experienced that, one of the first things I need to do, we need to do as evangelical churches is just say sorry for having got that wrong. And as it were, not reached out in love and compassion at a time when gay communities were having, you know, their population decimated uh, and going for a huge amount of, of grief and pain. So and I suppose that brings me on to sort of what we've got wrong in the past. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it is basically we've got what we've got wrong in the past is, is allowing there to be a perception that the worst sin possible is gay sex. That there's loads of sins here, but the worst possible sin that anybody can ever commit is having sex with somebody of the same sex. And that uh, we are up here all right, we've never really done anything particularly significantly wrong and we're looking down at you gay people uh, who have got everything wrong and who, to be honest, are beyond uh, the reach of God's love and grace of Jesus. We've Mm. given that impression so often and we need to just, again, recognise that and think about how we can can communicate to our our communities that that our sexual sin, because we're all sexual sinners, is you know, a moral equivalent, the same sort of level of ethical problem to our righteous and perfect God as their sin is. And all of it needs to be repented of, but all of it can be wonderfully washed clean by the blood of Jesus. So it's, it's just basic gospel stuff, isn't it? Right, right. We, I mean, embarrassing, we haven't actually applied the gospel to ourselves and to gay communities. We thought that it's not relevant to us in our interactions with them and that it doesn't have the power to change them where we know in Romans chapter one, that the gospel has power to save all. Right, right, right. No, that, that's, that's fantastic, Ed. Uh, very helpful. You mentioned something in there. You said something about that sometimes the pastors, ministers, or the church has, has a fear. What, what types of fears do you think are not named, you know, that, that churches or pastors are wrestling with in terms of the LGBTQ community? I think there's a whole range of different fears. I think one of the fears in play is just that all human beings seem to fear people who are different to them. Mm -hmm. And we see the effects of that, don't we, in um, race relations. We see the effects of that in the relationship between uh, people who would define themselves as straight and people who are gay. We see that in loads of different contexts that we just struggle with difference and we fear difference. So at one level, it's just a basic fear of difference. Uh, another level, it's it's now increasingly a fear of, am I going to be reported by these LGBT people as being homophobic? Mm. Are they, as it were, out to get me and to get our church and to ruin our reputation in the local community? Um, and that can sometimes uh, sort of be the fear that's part of the conversation, which is which is an interesting dynamic because often, as it were, we're now experiencing as church leaders uh, what many gay people experienced go back a few decades of a fear of being, as it were, called out and exposed and vilified by society. That's what it was like to be gay, for instance, in the 70s and 80s, certainly over here in the UK and I'm sure in the US to some extent as well. And we now have that fear ourselves. And we're going through, to some extent, not actually to the same extent, but to some extent, what they went through. And we're thinking, you know, is this person who's asking me this question about gay sex and about uh, gay marriage, are they, is it a genuine question? Mm -hmm. Or are they out to get me? That's one of our fears. And then also just think there's a fear of, what do I say? You know, people who've got the best of intentions and want to do it well, just fear saying the wrong thing. I mean, I've got a friend, he tell, we've got one of the, the other founders of Living Out, a guy called Sean Doherty, tells a story of a friend of him ringing him up, you know, and saying, I've, I've got someone like you in my study at the moment. You know, what shall I do? And Sean was <laughs> going, you know, have you, have you offered him a cup of tea? Good idea. You know, just, <laughs> he just sort of, he'd lost all his sort of pastoral confidence because he just didn't know what to do. And Sean was just saying, take a deep breath, make him a cup of tea, chat. Do what you'd normally do. Don't think that just because somebody experienced uh, same-sex attraction, you haven't got any connection point with them or you you won't know what to say. Just listen uh, and uh, graciously try and help them. Prayerfully try and help them as much as you can. Don't, as it were, freak out because 
um, you think you don't know what to say. You probably do know what to say um, if you are, um, you know, wonderfully, if, you know, if God has given you the offers of pastor and you have got pastoral gifts and skills, you, you probably are going to know uh, what to say um, if you pray and ask God to help you. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Ed, what, um, what's it like for you personally when you might hear Christians or pastors emphasize protecting the church from an LGBTQ agenda in society? You know, how does that, how does that resonate with, with you? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I think one thing I always want to push back is it is this idea that there are, you know, there's some LGBTQI plus or whatever letters headquarters that is planning the downfall of the church. That's often the impression we give. That it's not the case, you know, I often use the phrase, certainly over here in the, in the UK, that there are gay communities. There's a whole host of different views and approaches to civil liberties and to church and to freedom of religion and belief amongst gay communities now. And so in some ways, this idea that there are those group of people who have all agreed to be out together is in itself just a false narrative. And there are some people within LGBT communities who want to silence Christians and who think the world would be a better place if churches that say that sex is for marriage between a man and a woman uh, were closed down. There are people, there are people that think that, and there are people that are doing their best to try and achieve that. But that is not true of every gay man or woman. Um, you know, in the US or in the UK. So that's partly what I want to say uh, to people is, it's just, there's, there is not a, there is not a sort of total conspiracy out to get us, um, even if there are some people that would love us uh, to disappear. And to be honest, think that we are going to disappear in a generation or two. Hmm. So that's part of what I want to say. But yeah, I think there are others that would once would actually see me as part of the conspiracy. <laughs> so I think that's the other. I mean, that you know, that's what you're hinting at. But you know, I, I certainly had people that say, you know, uh, that the pastors like myself who experience same-sex attraction, uh, who are trying to engage with the gay community, um, who are talking about our own experience, um, are as it were the sort of Trojan horses that are being used to undermine uh, sort of sexual ethics in evangelical churches today and I certainly I certainly had that allegation made against me um I just always want to say to people that you know I'm trying to live out the biblical sexual ethic and I'm trying to do that in response to it in response to the gospel of grace um I am in many ways in most ways no different to any other pastor I'm someone who is struggling with patterns of sin in my life I've perhaps unusually been more public and open and honest about them than many pastors are, but um, I am also seeking to live in the light of the gospel. I believe that God's word is authoritative. I'm not in a gay relationship. I have no intention of beginning in a gay gay relationship. Um, I am seeking to help others in being open and honest about an area of struggle, but that shouldn't in and of itself be a disqualification for ministry. In fact, I actually think it's a bit of a qualification for ministry. I think one of the things that pastors actually don't do enough is be open, honest about patterns of sin that we struggle with. And as we see pastors fall from grace, and everybody's shocked, of, we never knew that. Right. Part of me is actually wanting to say, why, why did why did nobody ever know that that was an area of struggle in their lives? Why weren't elders and, and church boards and you know friends actually keeping them accountable? And why did they not feel able to, to some extent, in an appropriate way, share? some of their struggles with their church family so that they could get the prayer, the accountability, the support, the love that we all need uh, to follow in the steps of Jesus. Yeah, no, no, that, that's, that's incredibly helpful. And, and I think it, it kind of speaks to a lot of the, the masks that, that we often wear in ministry, right? In, in this, um, this, this almost compulsion that we have to, to make people think we've got things figured out in some way. And yet that does a disservice oftentimes to the people whom God has, has called us to, to, to minister or is entrusted under, under our care. How do we as pastors and ministry leaders get beyond, because as you've shared, you, you had to come to a point in your life um, as a pastor where you became more transparent with some of your struggles. 
So what advice do you have for all people in ministry as they are, you know, considering how do I present myself, you know, in front of or alongside of the people that God's entrusted to me? I think one of the key things to understand is how a conspiracy can very easily develop. Um, your church family want you to be on a pedestal. Mm. They want to believe that somebody, they want to believe that there's some human being that just doesn't struggle and lives a life of, of total perfection. You know, they want you to be Jesus. And, and so they want you to be on the top of the pedestal. And, and to be honest, you know, for a pastor, it could be very flattering to be on the pedestal and to have all these people looking up to you thinking you're absolutely perfect. And so I think in a lot of churches, there's a conspiracy of you stay up there on the pedestal. Uh, we love the fact that you're there and we're not because it gives us for some reason hope. Let's never, as it were, let's never tell the truth. Mm. I can certainly remember the first time when I was in ministry in a, in a different church and I, and I started to tell a little bit of the truth about my struggle around sex and sexuality is you know, there was a resistance from some people in the church. They don't be so hard on yourself. The, the feel that I got from the church family was, we do not want you to go there. And that for me made me think, well, there's no way I could be open honest about, you know, the real truth. If that's sharing about 5% of the truth brought that <laughs> right. response. Um, so actually, you know, it was in a different church and in a different context that I felt able to say, you, know, you need to know this about me. That said, the other thing is just worth us considering, isn't it, is that when it comes to a lot of our behavioural sins, particularly our interactions with other people and thing, issues like pride and anger and things like that, often as pastors, we'll be telling our church family stuff that they know about already. You know, <laughs> there's both the pedestal problem, but then there's also the reality is that a lot of our churches know, know our weaknesses. Right. One of the things about leadership, isn't it, is you're up at the front and you, as it were, ex you, know, you you show people both your strengths, uh, the gifts God's given you, and your weaknesses, the weaknesses God's given you to make you become more and more like him. And actually, sometimes I hear people say, well, I couldn't possibly share that with my church family. I sometimes want to say, I think they know that you have an anger problem already. Or <laughs> I think they, you know, because right. they, you've been their pastor for 10 years. You told right. me that story. You've told me those stories. I think they know. So um, we need to jump off the pedestal and we need to recognise that, um you know, some people would want us to put off the pedestal, won't want us to jump off. But actually, there'll also be people in our church family who, who know some of the patterns of our sin and have been trying to cope with it for years. And actually, us just saying, yeah, well, as we all know, uh, this is an issue for me. And they, there'll be a relief of, oh, my goodness, you know, finally, we can talk about this and help our pastor or help our leaders uh, be more godly in this particular area. So I think honesty is what we should be doing. I'm I was the, I was really struck by the Apostle Paul's example, actually. Um, mm. One of the things that stopped me being open and honest is there was a sense in the in the subculture that I'm part of here in the U UK that 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 talking about yourself in a sermon was was wrong. Hmm. And obviously, we've all come across pastors that in some ways just talk about themselves all the time yeah. <laughs> in, a, in a wrong and unhelpful way. Right. I was really struck by reading Paul's letters, how often he talks about himself. And he talks about his his spiritual autobiography. And he talks about his struggles with sin. And he talks about how hard he finds life. And that just made me think, why have they picked up this rule that you, that you, can't, you can't share of yourself and the gospel when you preach? You're just sharing about yourself. Yep, get out of the pulpit. Um, <laughs> but actually, we should be sharing of the gospel and ourselves. And as it were, using ourselves as a lived example of the gospel applied to a human life, because that's going to really help our church families apply the right. gospel to their lives too. Yeah, that's that's so good. Ed, um, there's been a lot of cultural discussion, really, about whether or not same-sex attracted people are born that way. And some Christians think that because God sanctifies us, that if same-sex attractive believers are, are diligent to surrender their desires to God, if they really lean in, if they really submit, that those desires will eventually uh, be removed. They'll eventually go away. What do you believe is the most accurate and helpful way for people to, to think about this specifically? I think I think one of the things just to realise is how often people's narrative around this is tied with their own personal experience, mm. 
um, all tied in with their, their theology. You know, so some people do have a sense of being made gay by a bad relationship with a same-sex parent or by how hard they found it to connect with their same-sex friends as they grew up. Some people do have that narrative. Other people have a narrative, and this would be mine, of, of it just felt natural. Uh, as natural as I presume heterosexuality felt for my peers as they grew up. Now, at the stage where they were beginning to notice some of the girls, the women that we were growing up with, I started to notice some of the guys, some of the men that we were growing up with, and it just felt natural. And, um, you know, theologically, I don't have a problem with it just feeling natural and it being just part of me, because there are loads of things that are part of me that came naturally to me that God says are problematic and need to be repented of. So the example I often use is stubbornness. I was born stubborn. There's a genetic inheritance of stubbornness that you can follow back through both lines of my family tree. I was born stubborn. Now, does that mean you say, well, Ed, stubbornness comes naturally to you? You just get, you just be stubborn. No, you say, Ed, you need to repent of stubbornness. But at the same time, actually, you're perhaps a little bit more sympathetic towards me as I fight stubbornness, knowing that it's part of a family tree. And I'd want to say to you know, to the whole, um, you know, people who don't like the narrative of, you know, it's part of it's part of who I was born. You know, it was there right, right at the beginning. Is it? It's it's not problematic from a Christian worldview. We believe in the fall. We believe that none of us were born perfect. We believe that that in all of us at the beginning of our lives there were, as it were, the sort of the spiritual seeds of what has brought challenge into our lives, whether it's stubbornness right. or, or same-sex uh, attraction. Um, and therefore, when that comes to sort of change, it's really interesting that efforts to change or sort of people that have said, yeah, true Christ-likeness is changing your sexuality are often connected with theories about how somebody became gay, same-sex attracted. Mm. So people who think it was all environmental factors, like a bad relationship with the same-sex parents or a bad relationship with other same-sex friends growing up, go, well, we can repair that, you know, reparative therapy. We can we can mm. sort of help somebody, as it were, rebuild their view of what it means to be a man, even though that was injured by a bad relationship with their dad or their, their male friends growing up. Um, those who, I may say, this is just part of how I'm wired, uh, understandably sort of, you know, less, not, you know, nobody's denying that God can't, change things and that people's sexuality does change because sometimes people's sexuality does change gender fluidity is being talked about more and more in society but if i said to anybody oh stubbornness stubbornness used to be a problem but it's not a problem to me anymore you know i think probably particularly if i was stubbornly holding on to that in an argument they'd say (laughs) not sure um and 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 the same with same-sex attraction it's you know there are some things that are so quite deeply wired into us you know, both as it were, because they felt natural and they came naturally and because they've become a pattern, a habitual thing in our lives that it's really hard to, it's really hard to change. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that's certainly been my experience. But I don't, again, I don't see it as problematic in the sense that the thing that God has most used to make me grasp the gospel of grace and the thing that God has most used to equip me, for instance, to be a pastor is my experience of same-sex attraction. Mm. And although my the my sexual orientation hasn't changed, um, my relationship to my sexuality and my pattern of behaviour when it comes to all the things, all the sort of the thoughts and behaviours around sexuality have got better over the years. Mm. Um, right. And I'm living a fuller and more godly life in the area of my sexuality than I have before. I don't want to be complacent about that, but it it has got better and actually i found that there's some there are there have been some advantages with being same sex attracted in being forced to learn what godliness looks like in the area of sexuality that some of my heterosexual friends and colleagues haven't had yeah, that, if that helps a lot in there <laughs> yeah no that, that that's that's very helpful and and it it kind of um emphasizes and kind of reiterates that we're all unique individuals and when it comes to ministry it's very important that we listen to someone's story 
you know, that we take the time to hear their journey, their experience, their story, instead of coming at it almost like with a cookie cutter approach that, okay, if you, if you tick these boxes, then this is how, how I come at you. <laughs> you know, this is, this, is, this is how I minister, as opposed to stepping back and remembering what Christ modeled, you know, the woman at the well, seeing there, talking with her. Of course, he was Christ, so he knew her story but helping her share that story and, and really looking at people as individuals and not necessarily as, as uh, projects or as a, a subset of, of humankind, right? Yeah, I mean, just so important to, it's so important rather than, you know, when you are pastoring somebody that's same-sex attracted, you know, rather than thinking the thing I need to sort is their sexuality, mm you know, you want them to become more and more like Jesus. And actually you need to be open to the possibility that it's God's going to use their sexuality and the questions around that and the challenges around that to help them become more and more like Jesus. Yeah. You know, we should not be surprised that our God is capable of using really difficult and painful things mm. to do his will and to glorify himself and to further the cause of the gospel. I mean, you know, particularly in the run up to Easter, um, you know, in the context of being Easter people as Christians, we know that God could take and use um, the cross to right. further His kingdom. We can God God takes and uses so much of the the pain and the muddle and the confusion in all our lives to do the most fundamental work um, in our lives. You know, Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh. You know, Paul talks about how his part. I love I love two Corinthians one, where basically Paul says his pastoral care method is to take the comfort he's received in his struggles and basically <laughs> share them with other people in their struggles. That that is that is all you do in pastoral care. You think, how's God comforted me in my struggle? Let me see how I can, as it were, transpose that over into this person's life with their struggle. And certainly, you know, my pastoral care as a pastor is always doing that, transposing something I've learned in the context of my struggle to live for Christ and transposing it across into somebody else's life. And, and many times that's involved taking what I've learned around my experience of sexuality with same-sex attraction and applying it, in, for instance, into the, uh, the struggle that many people in my church family are having, uh, heterosexual people with pornography. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm transposing what I've learned as a same-sex attracted Christian into the lives of those Christians who are struggling with pornography. Um, and I found that that just just thinking that that's all I need to do is transpose the comfort that God's given me in my life, in my struggles, into their lives with their struggles. That would seem to be, I think, Paul's method and should be all of our methods when it comes to pastoral care. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's so good. And I, I think that really speaks to that ongoing relational aspect of ministry um it's it's our relationship with god and in our experiences and what god has brought us through and what god has taught us it's our relationships with others um, and what they're experiencing right and 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 it's it's just a beautiful picture of what it means to be part of the community of christ what it means to be engaged in his mission in our world um and when we look at some of those those struggles and some of those challenges, you know, many people see the, um, you know, sort of the requirement for LGBTQ believers to remain celibate as something that is, you know, harsh, something that is cruel, and, and they, they struggle with that. Um, that's why some, some Christians affirm LGBTQ relationships because of this, because, you know, they're thinking, you know, that it's unfair, unjust, harsh. What would your response um, be to those who have that perspective? Well, I think at one level it's justified when they look at churches and Christians who have no theology of singleness and no vision mm-hmm. of how the single life, the celibate single life can be good. So I think the challenge to the church so often is to remember that Jesus was single. Jesus, who talked to the woman at the well, was a single man. Jesus, who talked to the woman, well, was a human being, was a sexual being. He knows he knows what it's like to live in a sexualized society. He knows what it's like to live in a culture where there would have been a huge amount of pressure on him to get married. And yet he also knows how to handle himself um, with complete integrity in that interaction with the woman. I think it's one of the most striking thing about that interaction with the woman at the well. You know, he handles he handles himself with complete integrity. Um, in a way that all all human beings, particularly all men, should should be learning from. 
Um, and we've got a vision of, of what it is to be single, what it is to live life to the full in Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's the great example of what it is to be human. And he was single and he never had sex. And we need to, in our churches, build up people's understanding that, yep, marriage is a great gift from God, but singleness is also a great gift from God. And that the single life can be uh, as rich and fulfilled and happy and Christ-focused um, and full of relationships and intimacy and joy and appropriate touch and passing things on to the next generation and helping bring up the next generation as a married life can be. And we need to, as it were, you know, recognise that the New Testament, for instance, redefines family. Hmm. It's not just nuclear family in the New Testament, it's your church family. And Jesus actually says that his family is not his biological family, but his, the people that follow him. You know, Paul really clearly, you know, regarded his, the churches he pastored and particularly the, the co-workers he had, the men and the women, as people who he was in a family relationship with. And mm-hmm. uh, we need to build churches where, we don't just talk about them being church family, but it feels like a family for everybody. And that's when the single life for same-sex attracted single people, but also for single people of all different shapes and sizes, the, the divorced, the widowed, um, everybody who's single feels this is a life that's worth living. And we all see that, yeah, marriage is a great gift, which has some pluses and some minuses. Singleness, great gift that has some pluses and some minuses. We should actually be thinking... Actually, these are two these are two really good options and actually people who are getting married should be in some ways mourning saying goodbye to singleness because singleness had brings so many advantages um, and we should stop seeing marriage as the prize and singleness right. as the booby prize no singleness yeah. is a gift and you know Paul even goes as far as saying he'd prefer it if people were single <laughs> right right yeah it's interesting how society has has um set it up where singleness is you know oftentimes feels uh second best you know and the church has been been guilty of that in in many ways by um elevating marriage to such a degree that um it's it's almost um dismissing you know the the gift of singleness as you've said and i think there's a lot that we can learn from that um in regard to that ed uh, you you spoke there about um, developing intimacy and strong relationships, and and I'm just curious, how do you pursue intimacy and and depth in community apart from a a sexual relationship? And how can churches really help um, all single Christians in this? Because I think there is such an emphasis in our society society on the sexual side of relationship obviously you know we see that all around us um and we as a church i think uh as we elevate marriage and as we we um you know wrestle with that that sexual intimacy piece um we too can almost make it out that there's such a a, um you know a, a challenge or a struggle when it comes to intimacy outside of sexual relationships so can you talk to us a little bit about you know what do we really need to be thinking about and in, in, in maybe more healthy in the way we approach this idea of, of intimacy and deep community? Well, I think, I mean, the first thing to say is it's so important to think about this because, you know, single people collapse because they don't experience intimacy in any relationships. They feel isolated alone, but also marriages collapse because they don't experience any intimacy outside the marriage and uh, the marriage collapses under the weight of expectations that the other person is going to meet all their intimacy needs and it all goes wrong. So this is for everybody in your church, whether they're married or single, whatever age or stage they're at, you need to be helping them develop intimate relationships. You need to be helping them develop friendships um, that are, you know, non-sexual friendships in which people can get the full range of people, the full network of support we all need to thrive as human beings. And I think I think this is a skill we've lost um, and I think it's a skill that needs to be taught and demonstrated and that we need to encourage people uh, to prioritise. And I think I think it's basic stuff like 
time. You need to give time to other people. You need to spend some time with other people. And in particular, you need to serve alongside other people. Um, that's one of my lessons, or the lessons I've most learned about friendship is, is time produces friendship and time spent serving alongside people in, in a church community, you know, on a summer camp um, yeah. or in a mission project, uh, you know, uh, serving on a sort of a catering team or a welcome team in a church family. You know, time spent regularly seeing somebody, uh, serving together, getting into the, you know, it's being on a rotor that just creates the habit of you spend some time every week with this person because you're in a prayer triplet or because you're on the same rotor or because you're helping out the same youth group. That's one of the key things to producing friendship and intimacy. So time's key. And the other thing that's key is just, it's just talking and being open and honest. And when somebody says, how are you? You tell them the truth. Hmm. Now there'll be some context in which, you know, you don't have the time to do that. Mm -hmm. But if they're really honest in contact, if somebody says, how are you doing? You go fine. And you think, actually, no, I'm not fine. You, you, know, you say to them, I'm not fine. I don't have the time to talk now, but I'd love, could you give me a ring later on? Could you give me a ring tomorrow? But I think so often it's, we, we, we don't enjoy good intimate friendships with other people because we've never shared anything intimate with them. And what produces intimacy, what produces healthy intimacy is healthily sharing things. So I found, for instance, sharing my experience of same-sex attraction and the struggles that came with that with friends was the thing that in some ways most transformed those friendships into being, you know, quite superficial into actually being more intimate and healthful and and healthy because I'd shared something quite big and personal with them. Hmm. And often I found people responded in kind and therefore we just built up a deeper friendship because we were actually starting to share deep things. So, you know, give time to other people and just talk with other people, but make sure it, it, it's honest talk. It's not just small talk. It's not just, yeah, I'm fine. It's telling people the truth. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Ed, you've you've shared, and in, in, in through this conversation, it's obvious that God has, you know, taught you a lot about yourself um, in, in your journey with Jesus. What is it that God has taught you about himself well you know what are some things that you've really um learned in maybe a fresh way or a deeper way about the nature of god and, and who he is through your experience with being same-sex attracted in this journey you've been on i think the biggest thing is that i've most of all been created to enjoy an intimate relationship with god and jesus now, so one of the big questions i've often had um, and I really struggled with at some stages was, well, why have I got this sexuality? Why do I experience sexual desires? Why do I have this capability to love? You can't put it into practice with another man. You can't live it out in a sexual relationship with another man. So often that used to be really frustrating. It felt as if God had given me this capability and then said, oh, but you can never use it. Hmm. When actually just learning that the, the most fundamental reason I'm a sexual being, you're a sexual being, you have powerful sexual desires, I have powerful sexual desires, is to help us to grasp, uh, first of all, God's love for us. Because in scripture, what is the language that God most powerfully uses to communicate his passionate love for us? Well, actually, it's the language of sexual desire and sexual love. You know, Ezekiel 16, I can remember my mind being, my heart being blown away the first time I I followed the language of Ezekiel 16 or Song of Songs, of course, or Hosea. You know, these passages were basically saying, God saying, I love you like a husband loves his wife. I love you, my people, like a passionate husband loves his beautiful wife. So for me, as it were, just realizing, hey, my sexuality is, is there to help me appreciate God's love. And when I feel the strength of sexual desire, I'm actually giving given just a small little insight into the strength of God's love for me. And also, you know, the whole thing about having a sexuality and the whole desire to be at one with someone and to be completed by somebody is actually pointing me to where this world is heading. It's pointing us to all to where this world is heading. You know, every marriage in creation between a man and woman is just a, a trailer or a foreshadowing of the marriage, which is the marriage between you know, God's son, Jesus, and God's people, the church. Mm -hmm. And that desire, we all have to find somebody who will complete us and satisfy us forever. It's, it's never going to be fulfilled in any, in any human marriage, in any marriage here on earth. It's only ultimately going to be fulfilled 
in the marriage between heaven and earth, uh, between Jesus uh, and his church. And so, again, you know, when I think, oh, I just I wish there was I wish there was somebody who complete me. I wish there was somebody who will who will whisk me off into the sunset. There is. And um, his name's Jesus. And he's going to do that to all of us at the end of time. So just really understanding the answer to the question, what is sexuality for? Why do I have a sexuality? Well, it's to help me appreciate God's love. It's to help me to really appreciate and realise where this world is heading. That has been a game changer for me mm. over the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, it's powerful. It's powerful, Ed. As, as we're wrapping up our conversation, um, you have the ear of um, your brothers and sisters who are serving churches, serving Christ in his church. What would you like to leave with them? Maybe maybe something we've already discussed, maybe something we haven't touched on yet, but what would you like to, to leave with them and encourage them with? Well, here's, here's a, I mean, I think it would be where, in some ways where we've, where we've just left off. I think, I think the key question that we need to be giving our church families uh, the answers to and confidence in sharing the answers to is, is the question is, what are our sexualities for? What's the purpose of our sexualities? I think we would all better inhabit our sexual bodies if we knew that ultimate purpose. I think we'd also be better at explaining to uh, our, our church families, our children growing up and a watching world, why we have very different standards and practices when it comes to sexuality. If they understood that's because we have a very different answer to the question, what is sexuality for than the world around us? So, you know, I've just read I've, during lockdown over here. I wrote a book called Purposeful Sexuality, and it's meant to be a short introduction to sexuality from a Christian perspective. And it's it's basically seeking to answer that question: What is sexuality for? And I think it's the key question for ourselves, but I also think it's the key question in conversation with others. So often, when I'm talking to people who are from a liberal perspective as Christians or from a secular perspective. And I'm wanting to help them make sense of me, and I'm wanting to make sense of them. The question I'll be asking them is, just just tell me, you know, what, what do you think sexuality is for? And often they've either not been able to express that and it's really got them thinking, or they have expressed an answer, and it's been a very different answer to my answer. And that's helped us, as it were, make sense of why we, for instance, disagree over same-sex sexual relationships hmm. or equal marriage. Because of course we do, because we have totally different visions of what sexuality is for. And, and then it's helped to have a much more healthy uh, conversation that it's really easy from a Christian point of view to point people to Jesus. Because you're basically saying the reason we have sexuality is for to share God's love with us. That's a gospel opportunity. The reason we have the sexuality is to help right. us to see where this world is going to. That's a gospel opportunity. So that's what I'd, I'd love to share with everybody. And uh, that's, yeah. a, that's a question we all need to be able to ask and answer with, with, with gospel humility, but also confidence. Yeah, that, that's excellent because that, that reframes a lot, of, a lot of the conversations. It's almost like we're having a lot of conversations up here, um, whereas you're saying we need to kind of get down. There, there's a deeper conversation. And once, once that deeper conversation is, is had or expressed or we come to terms with the answers to that deeper conversation, then these other conversations kind of align, you know what I mean? And, and it's, it's easier to express, not just uh, talk about what's, what culture's saying or, or whatever, you know, might be the latest, but actually talking about the, that, like you said, the purpose of sexuality and how that um, understanding changes our perspective and even changes the conversations <laughs> that we're already having uh, around these topics. That's, that's incredibly powerful. T tell us, Ed, um, how can people find, find that book, first of all? Because that's... Uh, well, I, think, I, think it's out on the, I think it should be out on Amazon.com now. So it's called Purposeful okay. Sexuality. It, it, it's published by IVP in the UK, I think probably SPCK in the States. But yeah, my name's Ed Shaw, and the book's called Purposeful Sexuality. And you should be the book market now works works, doesn't it? That it's always everything's everything. Every, right. Things get over things get over the Atlantic quickly, and I think it's yes. out in the states. Okay, um, excellent. Yeah. And, and for the, our listeners, we'll um, we'll put some links in to um, to that book in the show notes for those of you who are listening, in, so you can find that there, and then uh, also a link to um, uh, Living Out the Ministry 
But Ed, how else can people, if, if they want to connect with you, um, can they connect with you in other ways? Oh, I'm trying to think. I mean, uh, um, I mean, just it's always the living the living out website is the best place to go to find out more about me and other people like me, really. And we we do a podcast, um, and I host that with a colleague called Anne, and that would be a great way of, as it were. If you want to spend any, I mean, not many people want to spend more time with me having met me for the first time, but if you wanted to spend more time with me uh, coming and listening to our podcast and subscribing to the Living Out podcast, which I think is available on all the various sort of usual ways of, of getting hold of that would be a way of doing that. And we we spend a lot of time having very similar conversations uh, as this one with people um, who are same-sex attracted and friends of ours and allies of us um, from out the UK and further afield. Excellent, excellent. What what a great resource, and and we'll be sure to have links to that as well in the show notes. Ed, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, to spend some time with you, to hear your story, and hear how God has um, continued to shape you, but also has really prepared you and helped you as a pastor in in uh, relating to and ministering to um, the people that that you bump into in in your uh, everyday life there in the UK, and and some great insights that you've shared with us that, that we can uh, adapt and adopt and, and take into our churches and our places of mission and ministry. So thank you for making the time to be with us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. All right. God bless you, brother. Same to you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. Be sure to check out the other episodes in this series. You don't want to miss out on the full discussion. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our interviews. We'd appreciate it if you could take just a few moments to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform or sending an email to podcast at churchleaders.com. Your positive reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.